Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. everyone and welcome to a cell around the world today on the show we have Robbie Shattuck let me tell you a little about Robbie so Robbie envisioned the concept of Athos after years of honing his skills while managing the financial lives of the tech elite in San Francisco Bay Area he wanted to bring the best ideas used with the world's wealthiest and share this with the next generation of wealth creators prior to starting Athos Robbie managed family office relationships for technology founders, executives, and professionals at Iconic Capital, and spent time working with high net worth families in J.P. Morgan's private bank. Robbie has a Bachelor of Science in Actuarial Science from Brigham Young University. Robbie enjoys spending time with his wife and three beautiful daughters, exploring the outdoors, pushing the limits with endurance sports, and building new relationships. Welcome, Robbie, to Sell Around the World. Oh, thank you. Robbie, a pleasure to have you here. I'm uh, very curious and interested about all your journey. And uh, starting from the beginning, curious about uh, your educational background. So you have uh, actuarial science, business, and Portuguese learning. And uh, we obviously were curious about uh, why uh, Portuguese came into the mix of and how does it serve you at this moment? <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking. Well, uh, when I started my uh, college career, I started uh, school at BYU, Brigham Young University, and it's based in Provo, Utah. So if you're ever in the U.S., you fly into Salt Lake City, you take a car, drive down about 30, 40 minutes to a very small town. And they've got this amazing university, one of the best in, in the United States. It's a private university. And I did a year of schooling there and I had no clue what I wanted to do. Like a lot of students, uh, at least here in the U.S., you know, you can change your degree a couple times. And I was one of those who went from biology to psychology to math to I really didn't know what I wanted. I then deferred school for two years and did a two year mission in Brazil, which is where I uh, got my exposure to Brazil and learned to love the country, the people, everything about it. I spent a few months in Sao Paulo and then spent the remainder of the two years in Bahia, in Salvador, parts of Pernambuco as well. And that's where I learned how to speak Portuguese. And so I ended my time there in Brazil and that was uh, back in uh, 2005 to 2007. And then I moved back to the United States. And then as I progressed in my studies, I realized, well, I know how to speak Portuguese, but I don't really know Portuguese. Like, let's be honest, I could speak it, have a good conversation, I can read it. But when it came to grammar, understanding just literary studies, I didn't know anything of the sort. And so I decided, well, if I can speak it, I have a leg up on a lot of people. I might as well just do that. And so I uh, took a number of courses there. And initially, I wanted to go after that time, wanted to go into international business realizing that I can speak a language that a fair number of 
of people in the United States speak Portuguese and you can find Portuguese sprinkled throughout the world outside of Brazil. But then I kind of ended up going in a slightly different direction. And for me, I'll try to keep this short and sweet, but uh, I realized I loved math, I loved economics, and I love statistics. Uh, so you put those in a blender and that's how you get actuarial science. And after starting on that degree, I realized also, well, actuaries are great. They're very smart. They're very analytical. You learn how to think, but not to give a stereotype, but you also get stuck in a corner crunching numbers for the rest of your career. And I like people too much. I love talking to people. I love uh, hearing stories and hearing why people do what they do and then taking their stories and taking my skill set and bringing them together to create strategy. And so I uh, ruined the statistics of the statistics department there at the school by not going into actuarial science as a career, but that's how I ended up on it. And if anything, it set me apart as I was looking for you know, future jobs out of school because I was not a finance major. That's very interesting. I was also wondering about uh, the actuarial science because it actually deals a lot with uh, risks. And uh, now that uh, going forward on your career, we see that uh, you work with uh, entrepreneurs and people that uh, takes a lot of risks on their lives. I was wondering how does those two worlds would uh, combine? So we got it. <laughs> that's that's interesting. That's awesome. Makes total sense. We would love to, you know, speak in Portuguese with you, but we're not going to put you on the spot. And we also want <laughs> our foreigners, listeners also to, to understand this podcast. We discovered something interesting about you. So you worked in the U.S. Department of Treasury during the Obama administration, where you did daily briefings for President Obama, Secretary Geithner, and Secretary Woolen. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, sure. So this was actually uh, while I was finishing my school career. And so, I, you know, everyone takes a different approach in school. I worked uh, full time while I was in school studying as well. And so I started my career maybe earlier than some. And uh, I a lot of through what I do is all through networking. And that's really business in general is not just uh, what you know, but who you know and how you use those contacts to your advantage. And so I uh, got an opportunity to work at the um, U.S. Treasury, which is right next to the White House for the span of four months. Now, when I say work, I worked full time, but I didn't get paid anything. Um, it was one of those experiences where they put me in the markets room, which is nobody's ever heard of the markets room of the Treasury. Uh, you don't you can get on Google and look it up and you'd be like, nobody knows what it is. It essentially sat in the basement of the Treasury and sat between uh, the Department of uh, International Affairs and, and Domestic Affairs. And basically what you do is you sit at a Bloomberg terminal, you have four screens in front of you, and you're just watching what's going on day in and day out, getting on the phone with traders at the different banks and the different hedge funds and saying, what is going on today? Why are markets moving the way they are? Then we would type up a, a one-page briefing. We would negotiate and debate it for an hour and then send it over to Obama. And so... It was actually hand-delivered. So there's a tunnel between the Treasury and the White House that some people know about, some don't. And a member of our team would actually walk it over down the tunnel underneath, hand it off to someone else. They put it in President Obama's binder at the time. And then that's how he would stay up to date. So uh, fascinating experience, eye-opening, and uh, gives you a little bit of the inner workings. Awesome. That's really interesting. And um, talking about when you joined uh, J.P. Morgan Private Bank in San Francisco, did you already have in, in mind uh, working with uh, tech individuals or it happened uh, on the way? 
and we were wondering how the culture and services uh, of a, a traditional bank like JP Morgan would differ from what uh, you end up experiencing in, in Iconics. Yeah, so I, I wish I could give myself the credit in saying, yes, I had the forethought of working with individuals in tech. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of luck that happens. I actually grew up in the Bay Area. And so there's San Francisco Bay Area. It's a little bit of a stretch. I grew up a little bit outside it, maybe an hour or two outside. My father worked for one of the tech companies. And so I had some exposure, but I also realized I did not want to work in HR, which is what he did. Um, but I understood that there was just a lot of growth in the area. And so when you get a job in a private bank, such as JP Morgan in San Francisco and Palo Alto, California, it's rare to not have a client that's in tech, meaning a client who's in real estate or some other area. And so if you're there, you're going to be working with individuals in, that are in technology. And so you quickly learn to get smart on the different spaces and understand the difference between uh, the different technologies and companies that are out there and what they do and why they do what they do. And there are other areas that are growing, but you know, the past 25 years have seen that technology is where software technology is where a lot of the uh, growth has happened. There are other areas as well, but feel fortunate to have started my career in that area. When you compare the culture and services of JP Morgan and Iconic, uh, night and day. JP Morgan is a bank, having worked for a bank for a couple of years, you see how things are done. Phenomenal experience, great resources. It has a great brand name, but uh, from a client perspective, it offers services or not even services, it offers products and those products are necessary, but the services is what individuals really want, at least in the wealth management space. And so I got recruited over to Iconic actually by my former boss at JP Morgan and uh, started my career there. I was there for about six years and it was a, it was a wild ride, which I can talk about in a bit, but the, you know, the services that Iconic offered were uh, you would work with the banks, you would reach out to the banks. And so I started as an analyst at JP Morgan. And then when I went to Iconic, it turned around that I was essentially the client of JP Morgan interfacing for my clients at Iconic, who most of them were several hundred million or billion dollar clients. And so it was for me, it was a lesson learned. Always be kind to everybody you work with. Doesn't matter how junior they are, they might be your boss someday or be the one bringing you the business. So yeah, I can dive more into the, the services, but I think I'll pause there for a second. Oh, nice. Yeah, excellent. We definitely want to back on that. <laughs> so to provide everyone with more context about Iconic, um, Iconic Capital is a privately held investment firm serving some of the wealthiest, most influential families and organizations in tech. So I assume you had access and relationship working with some of the brightest minds in tech. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and whatever you can share there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, uh, I can't share any names uh, for you know, confidential reasons, but I'll share anecdotes. Iconic is, uh, it has built a name and a reputation for itself. Uh, for a little bit more context, it's a multifamily office that brings together the brightest minds, the wealthiest, most successful individuals and families in technology generally, and then also marries that together with a what they call a merchant bank, or they have a private real estate investment fund. And then they also have a growth equity fund, which is essentially investing in later stage uh, companies, companies that are close to going public, but maybe anywhere from two to five years out from that stage. Phenomenal experience, because when you have the brightest minds of you know founders who work at companies that might be like 
you know, Twitter, Facebook, Dropbox or Lyft or something like that. LinkedIn, you, you can name really a lot of the big tech companies in the Bay Area that are headquartered there without saying specific names. You could probably think, okay, here's a company. They're probably a client, the CEO or founder, one employee that's very senior there. And so when you're working in, in that space, I only worked with 10 to 12 individuals or families at a time. And in wealth management, typically it's, you know, 50 to 100 is what people are working with. And so the services offered were very specific and nuanced, uh, built great relationships through this experience and got to know many individuals where you're helping them from managing their investment portfolio, which is in the several hundred million to billion dollar plus range to, hey, they need a private jet because they're going from SF to LA for a concert and they need it that day and they want the best price and they need pistachios on it. And, you know, there's certain nuances that people care about. You get to know people personally. You know, we would deal with those things and the estate planning and everything else. But um, the dollars you deal with are add a couple more zeros and things get a little bit more exciting, I'd say. So I, I was able to spend time there, spent several years really just honing my skills. But I guess to give a share a little story, I'd been there maybe three months and as an analyst early on, they put you on what they called the trading rotation. Whoever got the short straw that week would show up at six in the morning, be ready to trade. And uh, one particular morning, one of my clients happened to email me five minutes before markets opened and said, I want to sell $100 million of my company stock. Can you get the trade in? You know, young in your career, six in the morning, you're still kind of rubbing your eyes, trying to wake up. And now you've got to trade a $100 million position that when you do trade it, it will move markets. And so small little anecdote, but just a little flavor of what it was like to work there. I'm curious because in Brazil, when you when you actually put an offer to buy or to sell more than 5% of uh, the cap table, you end up uh, having to disclose a lot more information. And sometimes this creates anxiety because when the founder is selling there, it's a problem. Was that the situation similar? Did it... Uh, trigger any other impact in stock prices or market reaction on this case? Or not really. I mean, it wasn't uh, that relevant. This one, no. <laughs> yeah, normally uh, it's the same rule here in the US. If you're a founder, you can't sell unless you're in a, an open window. Basically, earnings have been announced and you've got a three, four week period to trade. This individual surprisingly held a big chunk of the company, but they were less than a 10% holder and they didn't work there anymore. And so they had you know, half, I think this was 20% of their position, maybe they had half a billion, but because it was such a big company, it was enough to move markets, but not enough to raise a red flag other than maybe they'll have to do extra, you know, filing for what they're doing. Very atypical for what you would normally see. Totally. And then Rob, like uh, many other people, you decided during the pandemic to make a change in your career. And you were brave enough to walk away from Iconic, which is considered uh, a dream. And you decided to build your own company and you started uh, to plan everything and to attract the future tech billionaires on a pre-liquidity stage. So can you tell a little bit about uh, that momentum, the decision and how you had uh, to change your mindset and build uh, different skills that you had in the past? Yeah, definitely. So uh I have the benefit of uh, being married to a woman who's extremely smart and talented. And uh, I definitely married up. My wife's, uh, uh, she's not practicing right now, but she's an attorney. And she, when you're married to an attorney, she helps you think through all sides of everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And she was very good at helping me, I guess, keep me grounded and remind me, well, you've got a, a great job, but are you happy? 
And that's, that's a big thing. And now it's not always that you're always going to be happy and have a great job. Iconic is a phenomenal place and the experiences, but I was missing something. And I had the entrepreneurial bug that was just there, as you mentioned. And actually two months before pandemic was really declared a pandemic, I already announced to my boss that I was planning to leave and start my own thing or just leave. I just wanted a change of scenery, which some people would say, that's crazy. You had a dream job. The trajectory is phenomenal. You're going to do great and financially be in a good spot, but I was unfulfilled. And so for me, money isn't always the driver of everything. Yes, money is important. You need it to do well. And, you know, I was doing well financially. And I think I had the benefit where I, I could take a pause and say, which direction do I go? And so I searched around, interviewed at a few places and realized, well, why would I go work for someone else if I'm already at Iconic unless I do this myself? And so that really uh, jump-started things. And so I, I interviewed at a place actually in Utah because I was in California in the Bay Area and I had gone to Utah to interview at a smaller firm. And that was when I realized, no, I just need to do this myself. So I uh, quit my job. My wife was pregnant. I was on parental leave for about two and a half months. And during that span, um, started just figuring out how I would make this happen. And then uh, uh, after my daughter was born, I uh, kicked things off and started a firm. Uh, the difference is, is when you go from a firm like Iconic that has billionaires as clients, billionaires typically aren't going to follow you to a brand new firm with two people, which was me and my wife. And so we started from scratch and a little bit of a crazy story. And anybody who's in the wealth management space or wants to get into it, my advice is do not start a business with no clients and uh, not much in savings because you're gonna you're not making a salary. I think it's probably the hardest way to go. But for me, it made sense and it worked out because what I was trying to do is build something completely from scratch. I could have joined up with another firm. I had five offers in hand. I could have taken I, any of them from Morgan Stanley, from one of the big two of the big firms that are competitors to Iconic, and I turned them down. Really good money. I turned down a job, and I won't say the numbers, but the pay potential was astronomical. And I just was like, no, nah, I can't work for someone else. So anyway, it's been a fun ride. And uh, when you do this, uh, I'm getting a little long winded here. But when you do this, when you're working in a role, I got really good at investing, really good at giving advice on estate planning. What I didn't know was how to run a business. And that's where I uh, cut my teeth. Oh, the marketing, the operations, the the compliance, the legal, the everything else. Oh, dealing with employees and payroll, HR, you know, it just, it adds up, uh, you know, fast forward to today, I wouldn't have done it any other way, but other than at least now I, I'm the type of person I want to know every little detail, but once I know it, I will pay somebody else to do those details, but I need to understand it. And so that's kind of how Athos got started, which is the firm I run. And I can talk more about what we do, but I'll, I'll, I'll give another pause here. Just as an observation, so you know that uh, we were on your shoes uh, back in 2008 when we founded Astella with uh, no investors. So it, we were on the same uh, page and you're like, what you do now, right? <laughs> oh, so on that note, with all your learning in marketing and sales and, and sourcing, how do you bring on clients on board nowadays? Like, do you have a strategy for sourcing? What, how did that start happening? I mean, in the wealth management space, there are a couple different strategies. There's the cold calling. You can just go out and reach out to people who you think might have money. There's the strategy of find who's a really smart venture team like Estella or a private equity firm, and you attach yourself to them. And when uh, a founder 
is coming into some big money and they're asking, hey, who should I talk to? They refer you over. Now, that's one strategy. There are a lot of different strategies. Uh, my strategy was initially I didn't have a strategy. I really didn't know how to do this, to be honest. It was uh, I flailed for a little bit until I figured it out. And I spoke with a, a very smart individual who runs a $20 billion multifamily office down in L.A., and he told me the first two years are critical. If you don't get to a point where you have this momentum where you're getting referrals and the right type of referrals you want, hang up your cleats and go work for someone else. Bring your book of business. They'll pay you a little bit for it and then go work for someone else and say, that was a nice dream, but go back to working it for someone else. I have too much pride and too much uh, desire to not do that. And so I started by actually first just reaching out to people I knew and just spreading the word saying, hey, well, nobody knows about it. So I need at least to tell people. Uh, and so I told everybody and anybody I knew and spent a uh, majority of uh, summer of 2020 on the phone, just telling everybody what I'm doing and here's what's going on. And this is the business and started with one client and then two. And then somebody reached out on LinkedIn saying, oh, I, I have been following you. Uh, let's chat. And then uh, it kind of snowballs from there. And you fast forward to today and the momentum has kicked in where there's too much momentum. It's a good problem where we're trying to hire. Um, we're trying to hire a lot of employees because just can't keep up with the volume, which is a good problem. And the thing is, some really good advice I got from one of my um, uh, advisory board members is I was asking them, well, like, when do you say no? When do you put a, you know, a threshold or a limit, a floor on how much money someone has to have to work with you? And they told me, you should never have a limit ever. Now, Iconic has a limit. They don't have a stated one, but it's roughly, you probably need to be a billionaire and have 100 to 200 million in liquid assets. Now, that could have changed since I've left, and but that was generally the strategy. And this individual said, no, don't have a limit. Just be smart about who you work with. And so our strategy is, I don't care how much money you have. You can have a dollar in your pocket or a hail in your pocket and, and say, that's all I've got. But then what is the potential? And so our clients are what I say, the next generation of wealth creators, where today they might have 10 grand or 20 grand in their pocket. But as you work with them, they might be raising a series seed round or a series A. Nobody wants to talk with them or work with them because they're not going to get paid. We're willing to work with them, get them set up, really roll up our sleeves, spend the time and you fast forward. And all of a sudden that series A round becomes a series D and the individual who had a dollar in their pocket now has 50 million and it's still growing. And so that's essentially our strategy is who are the next smart, bright, interesting people and who are the people that support those CEOs and founders, bring them in, help them out, get connected and add value. And so a lot of what we do is it's more, I'm a connector and a strategist. I give you good advice. I connect you. I help you out and give it time. So we're still early. Our firm is still small. Our assets are not huge. We're not one of the largest firms out there. We're not an iconic with the clients that we're working with in trajectory, talk to us in five to 10 years and we will probably be there. So um, that's a very short, long, short answer. Oh, excellent. And uh, considering the persona that you focus, um, founders and, and um, people coming from the tech industry, what are the products and uh, investment strategy you had to create or you think about creating that uh, are a differential for your persona and uh, and for the needs that this uh, public have? Yeah. So our clients are as young as 25 
and maybe as old as 45. And we have a few that are older than that, that I will call friends and family. And so, but our core client is generally younger. You go to a lot of firms and you have to be 50 and have X number of assets. And then they're going to put you in some annuity program or you know, basic stock bond portfolio. And, and uh, that's fine. Uh, when somebody comes to work with Athos, they're younger, they're smarter. They're like, well, I'll just use Wealthfront. It's cheaper. Or tax loss harvesting, I can get that somewhere else. Or I can just buy an index fund. Why, why do I need to work with you? It's, it's cheaper. I can do this myself. And a lot of our clients are not a lot. All of them are very smart, but a lot of them like doing this on their own. And so what value do we add is essentially we've been there, done that. We've worked with the billionaires of the world, but we also know what strategy you need beyond just the investing. And a lot of individuals think, oh, I can figure this out. But there's a lot of nuance, especially when your company is going from private to public. Or if your wealth is growing and you're thinking more about your charitable strategy and how do you do that in a smart way. But the biggest value add is, is on the private investment side. And so what we do is we invest our clients in generally more passive public portfolios. I say generally because we're still getting access to really interesting investments. Or if we invest in emerging markets hedge fund, we're going to invest in it and get a you know a, an equity stake in the fund and pass that on to our clients. So that way they win. You can't get that on your own as an individual. But we, where we spend a lot of time is on the venture growth and crypto side. And so we uh, custody crypto assets for our clients and help them manage those. Uh, we'll do the stock and bond portfolio. But then on the venture side, we have proprietary funds that we manage where we uh, are investing in other funds like Estella and uh, funds like um, Blitzscaling Ventures or other funds that are out there. We're investing in those and giving our clients access where sometimes the minimum check size for, for their portfolio today is too high. And so instead, we have a really low minimum that gives them broad exposure to a lot of investments. And then as their balance sheet grows, we'll give them access that just they don't have to come through our fund. And then the last area, which we're still early, but we're launching a crypto venture fund as well, which is where our clients are. I'd say probably half of our clients uh, have a healthy amount in crypto already and love the space. But a lot of them also admit that they don't quite understand or know the space well. And so we're helping them by capitalizing on that and giving them better exposure. That's so interesting. And then, I mean, I was curious because one of the characteristics of uh, the era that we are living is the increasing social mobility. So successful entrepreneurs come back to the market, spend uh, their money, um, make the wheels of economy turn faster. But similar to what uh, apparently happened to Elon Musk, for example, all the entrepreneurs might choose to invest uh, in their next startup and uh, the impact might be a decrease in, in their um, wealth or liquidity. So how do you view the scenarios and how do you help founders in this uh, kind of situations and dilemmas and how do you help them on I mean, managing anxiety and expectations and this kind of things? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. This is a deep one. Uh, I was actually at a dinner last night. We were looking at an investment. And so we drove to Park City, which here in Utah, Park City is a big uh, ski resort town. And uh, we were looking at an investment, not your typical one. It's a consumer product and got talking to an individual who's looking to invest. And he mentioned to me how, and we actually were having this discussion. And he mentioned how he was CEO of a company for a number of years, 15 years, and made some money and did well. And I asked him, I said, well, what's next for you? And he's just kind of been investing his money here and there. And I said, well, are you going to go back? Are you going to go back working or what matters to you? And he said, well, 
you know, he can make more money investing than he can working as a CEO and grinding unless he has a phenomenal idea. And I think um, what it boiled down to is for those that are fortunate enough where they've, they have enough money where the money is not a problem or something they need to worry about, turning your focus and effort away from making money for you and turning that towards doing good, uh, focusing on this social mobility side. And uh, you look at Elon Musk, he's just a driven person, but I think a lot of what he's done besides Tesla, you know, SpaceX is he's focusing on solving problems. Now he doesn't always have the time or the energy or the resources. And yes, he's a very eccentric individual, but he is very focused on solving problems and doesn't care what the cost is. If he can solve a problem that helps society, or at least he thinks helps society to be seen, we'll find out. We'll find out if, if his tunnels from, you know, or these magnetic tubes, you know, from LA to San Francisco end up working out or not. But it's, uh, it's one of those things where if you made enough, you really don't care about your wealth. It's all about giving it away. And where I spent a lot of time at Iconic was working with individuals where they would say, wow, I've made a ton of money. How can I give this away? And in dollar terms, most wealthy, wealthy individuals, I'd say wealthy meaning you've got a hundred million or more, would struggle to give away a million dollars in any year. And if you think about it, if you've got a hundred million and you give away a million each year, each year over time, let's say you're 30, you live to be a hundred, that's $70 million. And maybe you account for inflation. That's still not the full hundred million because that hundred million is also being invested and growing faster than you're able to give it away. And so you have this problem where most individuals just can't give away their money fast enough. And so I think it really is a problem. And that's where you spend a lot of time is if you care about something, it doesn't necessarily have to be through a charitable effort. It can be a for-profit venture where you put money into a company or uh, what I call corporate philanthropy. You've got a friend who's got a startup. Who knows if it's going to be good or not? Who cares? Write the check, help them out, see where it goes. So it's kind of one of those things where you're helping somebody else uh, live their dream and you're putting money into society beyond just writing a check to help a certain organization. Now, obviously, there's a lot of good on the charitable side as well, but yeah, different avenues, different ways of thinking about it. That's wonderful and curious. As far as your experience goes, do you see that this um, characteristic is pretty much related to the U.S. society and entrepreneurs, or you think it's a it's a new zeitgeist uh, globally? We will see entrepreneurs doing or reacting this way. Uh, I think it definitely is a global thing. While I live in the U.S. and I also lived in Brazil, and I'm biased towards both countries, and I love them both. It's uh, there are good people everywhere. And I think wealth and, and talent is global. There's none of this, hey, my country is better. Or this is better. It's it's everywhere. And I think this is something where that is only going to pick up momentum as years go on. No, totally. And hey, now we have two people in Brazil and the giving pledge. So <laughs> I think we're getting there. There's about 200 in the US. We'll get there. But I, I also think it's a global momentum that's going on too. Speaking about Brazil, we would love to hear some advice you would have Brazilian high net worth individuals who wish to diversify their portfolio. Can you be conservative and still allocate a portion of your capital to the venture asset class in your point of view? My short answer is definitely. But why? Uh, so having lived in Brazil, I'm obviously biased. And watching the growth and how the country has evolved over you know the 15 years since I was there, it's been fascinating to watch. And the tech scene is growing tremendously and, and venture is, I still think it's in its early days and think there's so much more, more to come, but venture is inherently risky. Now, when I say risky, risk is, is all relative. 
uh, risk in the sense that you're locking up your money and you may not see it for a couple of years. And so you can't do anything with that. When you have a stock portfolio or bond portfolio, you can borrow against it and still stay invested. And you have freedom and flexibility. When you're investing in a venture, you can't borrow against it and it's locked up. But you're hoping that uh, the team that you're investing with turns it into four or five, ten times. Depends on you know where it goes. And so you can still be conservative and have venture in your portfolio. And it all depends on your cash flow or what you're trying to do. And maybe I'm putting my advisor hat on for a second and and uh, thinking that way. But you can still have a portfolio where you set aside only 10% of your balance sheet into private investments or venture. That's not taking a ton of risk because you still have enough outside of it. And so when we build portfolios, we are constantly looking at how can you build it in a smart way? And what we do is if someone said, I want 30% of my balance sheet in, in venture private investments, well, one, we would introduce you to a lot more outside of venture. Venture is one sliver, an important one and a key one, uh, but there are a lot of slivers. And so we build these out over time where we say, it's going to take you actually three to five years to get to that 30% target that's locked up in private funds. And then as your portfolio grows, it just kind of feeds itself. So anyway, I can get deep in the weeds and start nerding out, but I think I won't. <laughs> and Robbie, I mean, you were also a, a direct investor on some startups as far as we could um, dig into your life. We were wondering how does that top fit into your strategy and how do you end up uh, taking the decision to go into those assets and to have a, a specific role on that on their lives as uh, interpreter? Yeah. So we like to invest. You know, I personally like to invest as well. The advice that I give my clients, I probably take it to an extreme and I majority of my personal balance sheet is locked up in all private investments pretty much. Uh, now I understand my cash flow very well, but I think there's tremendous value there. And yeah, we, we have invested in you know a number of startups and a lot of my strategy is I want to invest in people who are smarter than me and then let those people find really good deals. So we invested in someone else who's really smart and then they in introduced us to an investment like Fastly or other investments that we've done. Uh, we invested in a a small sourdough company or a pizza, frozen pizza company. And most people would say, well, that's not software. There's nothing sexy about that. And it's part of it is one to support entrepreneurs, but part of it is, well, if you get in early enough, it's still a really good investment and could be better than any software investment because people aren't over, you're not overpaying for that. And a lot of software you can overpay. The multiples just get too high, especially right now, multiples are kind of going crazy and there's too much cash out there. And so we invest in funds. I personally invest in a lot of funds. And then as deals come up, we love participating. You know, how deeply involved do we get? Kind of depends. Some of these, not at all. Some of these are just writing money and others. We get to know the founders and we'll help them in any way we can. Robbie, we would love to hear if you have any particular view on the Brazilian tech and VC ecosystem. How do you think that most American investors see our recent growth in LATEM in general as an opportunity? Or do they see it as an opportunity? And what do you think the mindset around this is? Well, you look at the pandemic, you look at COVID. And if you go back before that, go back to 2019 and living in the Bay Area, it was definitely its own little bubble. VCs that are in the Bay were investing in companies that were in the Bay Area. And then when those companies went public and they made a lot of money, then those individuals were then reinvesting in companies in the Bay Area. And it was all staying there in this bubble. COVID happened and a lot of talented individuals moved outside of the Bay Area. Now, there were already 
ecosystems, and I'm focusing on the U.S. for a second, in Texas, in New York, here in the Midwest, in Salt Lake City, and areas like this, but then also in Brazil, and you have Israel, and you have um, you know pockets of Europe, and you you have these pockets of talent in really good companies, but they're just not getting the funding. They're just not getting the resources that they need. I'll focus on Utah because I you know this is a recent conversation I had. Someone said, "Well." you look at Utah and all these investors are starting to come to Utah to invest in all these companies. And now these companies are really doing well. And they ask them, well, why didn't you raise money four years ago? And a lot of these companies say, well, I, we didn't raise money because we didn't have a choice. There are only so many venture funds here, or only so many angel investors who could write a check, but there are a lot more really good companies that just had to bootstrap. And so as I look at Brazil, there are very good investment firms there, but there also needs to be more capital that's coming there. Now, capital in Brazil, but then also capital outside. The U.S. gets a lot of investment from outside of the U.S. as well. And I look at Brazil as one of those ecosystems that has incredible potential. You know, a good friend of mine, he's the founder of a company called Turumundi. And uh, he uh, you know, started that. He actually was in Palo Alto trying to raise money. But the company's based in Brazil. And I told him, I'm like, well, why are you doing that? You should be in Brazil. There's money there. And uh, you just got to get the right people to actually jump on it and focus on it. So, I think the future is there's going to be a lot more money pouring into Brazil. And the only thing investors have to get used to is uh, looking at exchange rates and understanding either hedging that or realizing that uh, the hail is just not value where it needs to be. If anything, this is a great buying opportunity. Yeah, totally. I've been talking to people about uh, what is going on in Brazil, particularly at this moment in the year where we see a lot of... Uh, global VCs pouring money and uh, it's there is a, a momentum here that uh, we are seeing a lot of uh, fear of missing out because there is a normal speech that uh, this is going to end. And the excuse that we hear that uh, GPs are giving to Brazilian founders is that uh, this euphoria is going to end because of a political and, and economical situation that, that we might face, like a turmoil because of uh, elections and this kind of things. Which is curious because at this time, we see that most of the VCs, the local VCs, have strong uh, dry power to continue investing. And it's not going to end until <laughs> the election comes. And, and uh, there is no this excuse that uh, the momentum is now is, is not something really rational. And I mean, I totally understand the founder size of uh, taking advantage of this liquidity. What I'm trying to understand is the global investors' side. And in some moments, I think that they are playing FX rate on the sense that uh, they might think that it will, the real will appreciate. So growth rates in dollar will, will be larger than it used to be because we had, we were, you know, depreciating considering the, the dollar. And because this kind of a uh, behavior is something that, uh, it's hard to explain, you know. Did you face a similar situation in, in the past or have a, a clue of uh, what these guys might be thinking about? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if I can get in the head of, of what some of those people might be thinking, but I will say, yes, they're, the idea of exchange rates and taking advantage there, it makes sense. Yes, there are geopolitical risks. There are risks of a new president coming in and changing things. There are risks of an economy turning. Brazil is a as a whole is a democratic country and there's a lot of talent. And the benefit that we have today is we live in the a technological era where everybody has, and what I'm holding up is my phone. Everybody has access to some sort of smartphone and can access to 
information and data that we couldn't get access to. I mean, the iPhone was launched in 2007. That was only 14 years ago. I don't think anybody remembers what life was like before then. I mean, I do, but I don't. I'm so used to it. And with the access to technology today, there's so much talent in countries like Brazil where it doesn't matter what's going to happen in the country. Companies and founders are still going to do well. They're going to find a way to adapt to whatever the situation is. And you look at a company like uh, Facily, that company probably would not do well in the United States, just given how it's set up. But there in Brazil, it's going to do great. And in, you know, uh, or Pinduoduo in China is doing phenomenal, or I guess in Asia in general, you look at these, there are always going to be companies that are going to take advantage of the current situation. Here in the US, uh, I think this is really all over, but here in the US, they talk about it being a labor shortage. There aren't enough people to hire. Well, there are enough people to hire. There are plenty of people. It's just, you've got to pay them more and you've got a supply demand problem. And so you've got to change the prices. So that way those equalize. And so I think what it is, is some investors get a little too caught up on, on what they don't know. And so they'll use an excuse or not jump in. I'm obviously biased. I love Brazil and I understand that the economy and what's going on and we're okay taking risks in areas that we don't see in the U.S. with risk comes reward. Yeah, maybe a little getting a little too, uh, I don't know, maybe philosophical or something. I could go off, but it's one of those things where I'm an optimist at heart. And so I'm going to let that drive everything. <laughs> so since you mentioned getting philosophical, we would like to get philosophical here now. <laughs> so our conversation is coming to an end. But we just wanted to explore a few more questions just to get a little bit of your perspective on how optimistic are you with the future of life and humanity? How far can we dream that the world will create solutions we need for sustainability? In your view, what are the main issues or problems you would expect innovators to address over the next few years? And does any of this interfere with or drive your investment decisions? Yeah. Well, so I just said I'm an optimist and I'm going to stick to that. I still am an optimist. I think there's a lot of bad in the world. There's a lot of issues going on. But as an optimist, I also think there are solutions, but those solutions require action or require individuals to step up. And sustainability as one area of focus is something that is becoming more important. The problem is, is getting incentives to align with those solutions. There's a company here in Utah called Cotopaxi. They're like Patagonia. They've grown tremendously, but they're set up in the U.S. as a B Corp instead of a C Corp. The difference real quick, C Corp is a company, a corporation that makes money for profit. B Corp has different rules and uh, you know they give away a certain amount of money and they do a certain amount of social good. And as government, it depends on how heavy handed you want government to be. Maybe you don't need government to come in and say every company should be like that because you don't want to stop innovation. But Individuals who have power or influence really need to step up and take action. Uh, you think about different movements all over the world, you know, at, at risk of uh, maybe offending China, but I'm not worried about that. You think, of, look at the recent situation of uh, the World Tennis Association and basically canceling all events through the next year and a half or two years because of um, what's going on and basically censorship. And it, you know, one individual said, we're going to do that at the risk of losing a lot of money, but they're standing up for something they believe in. And when I look at investments, there is a fine balance. When clients come to work with me, they say, make me money, make me money at all costs. And I say, well, yes, I want to make you money, but can we make you money without 
that part of all costs? Can we get you an absolute return that is just as good or if not better, but can we also have that social good approach? So there are certain companies that, um, you know, investors or funds come to me and I won't take the call. I uh, won't talk to them just because it's not something that I believe in. They're investing in an area that, you know, my personal view is I don't think it's doing good. And so it's a fine balance because if I'm not making money for my clients, they're going to get mad at me. But at the same time, I think uh, I'm at a spot where I can assert some influence over how money is invested in, in that change. And so it's, it's something that I think everybody tussles with. I don't have the answer, but uh, I think it's one of those things that you know I want to keep focusing on as years go on. Wow, excellent. Um, wonderful news. Uh, incredible to hear. Um, also really powerful in terms of uh, working with uh, missionaries and have a missionary dealing with their wealth and reminding everybody about uh, what kind of examples we can give to the next uh, person in our side. So really interesting. Thank you so much, Robbie, for being with us here. And uh, we will love to be uh, closer to you and, and Athos and uh, probably channeling some of the entrepreneurs that we are keen on and they are probably be liquid sometime and start dealing with you. So it would be awesome to continue this conversation in the future. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Robbie, quick question. Is your clientele only US-based or do you work worldwide? Uh, so we do work with individuals worldwide. Primarily U.S.-based, but we do have a, a handful of individuals that are in Europe, in various countries there. And um, yeah, it's something that we are, it's a little bit more of a struggle because of all the red tape, but it's something that we definitely yeah, will work with any individual anywhere. And if we can't work with them, at least we'll give them advice anyway. That's good to know. Thank you. This was wonderful, Robbie. Thank you both.